For the rest of us, if you'd turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, and we'll begin reading verses 16 through 20 once again this week. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. What an amazing moment that must have been to be on that mountain and to see you in your glory, to hear you declare that you have received all authority in heaven and on earth. We pray, our God, that you would so speak to us now through the preaching of your word and that your word would be empowered by your spirit moving in our midst. That you would deal with each one of us precisely what we need to hear. That our lives may be changed, that we may more accurately reflect you in this world. O oh Lord, our God, for our children who are gathered in children's worship, would you move mightily and draw them to yourself? Would they understand this is not what my parents believe, but may they understand this is truth and I believe it. And would they put their faith in you? Oversee all of that which is going on in this place, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's a series of uh, lectures that uh, Charles Spurgeon gave, and they've been collected in uh, a book called The Soul Winner. And I want to read to you just a, a little bit from the way that he begins uh, this, this book. Soul winner is not, not words that we tend to use a lot these days, right? That's not how we, we, we talk. That, that brings back pictures of, of years and years ago of the way that Christians used to talk. But I think that Spurgeon uh, may light a fire in us and maybe we'll say, hmm, maybe I can bring that back. He says, I purpose, dear brethren, if God shall enable me to give you a short course of lectures under the general head of the soul winner. Soul winning is the chief business of the Christian minister. Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true believer. We should each say with Simon Peter, I go a-fishing. And with Paul, our aim should be that I might by all means save some. I don't know about you, but I want to say amen. I, I, I just so appreciate uh, Spurgeon's heart. I'm, I'm sad that the concept of soul winning has is, is fallen away. Maybe to some extent there's, there's some abuses that, that, have, that have gone on that, uh, that have brought it into disrepute. But, but I think the concept and, and the passion for evangelism is something that I, I so appreciate and I, I see as very important. And, and that's the theme of, of, of our message today. When doing exegesis, one of the things that uh, uh, professors in seminary will teach students, and I remember uh, Dr. Zeller, he, he, would, uh, he was a retired Navy chaplain, and uh, he, would, 
he would look at us and say, men, the money's in the verbs. And that's how he put it. <laughs> He'd say, and tell us the focus is on the verbals. And, and understanding the verbs in the Greek uh, text helps you understand what the main point of the passage is. And it was very helpful to, to learn that. And in passages like what we're looking at in the Great Commission, it's, it's essential to begin to understand uh, the importance of the verbs. Uh, and, and in particular, verbals are all the different ways in which verbs are used in, in, in the Greek. Um, in this passage, in verses uh, 19 through 20 in particular, the Great Commission, there's actually only one verb that is an imperative in the, in the Greek text, you have different uh, ways in which the, the structure of the words is presented. And uh, the most common is in the indicative. But when you find a passage that's a, uh, an imperative or a command, that draws your attention when you're paying attention to the verbals. Is Oh, this is a command. This means this takes precedence. This is what's really important. He's commanding us on that which is of greatest importance. And so we turn our attention to that. And when we understand that there's just that one great command and a great commission, and it's not go, which is what we would immediately think in looking at it. It's not go. Go is actually a participle. And it's a participle. It's a temporal in which it's, it's talking about the kind of the, the time in which we're going to be doing the verb, the main verb, which is make disciples. That's the only command. Make disciples is surrounded by various participles. And in the Greek language, the participle is one of the most developed in any language ever, that they really utilize the participles. And there are two participles that would be participles of means. That is to say, they tell you how you're going to do the main verb. And I'm looking, it's looking like some people are glazing over. I've got one who's saying, yes, he's got that right. <laughs> but uh, it's, I don't know if it's great to have a Greek grammar amen or not, but I'll, I'll take it. It's, <laughs> there we are. <laughs> But is, and, and, and the reason I tell you this is, is so that we can begin to understand. Um, you, you, many of you know my friend Mel Pike, and Mel used to tell us in seminary, he said, uh, reading the Bible in English is like re- looking at a black and white TV. Reading it in the original language is like color and HD. And, and he really has is, is got something. And so I want to give you some of that picture of, of, of what we're, we're talking about. So you have this main verb, this command, make disciples. Well, when are we going to do that? As you go, having gone from here would be a better translation. Well, how are we going to do it? You're going to do it by baptizing and teaching. So baptizing and teaching are the ways in which we make disciples. We might think about, well, we make disciples. Well, that's, that's out evangelizing. Well, that's a part of it. But so is teaching in our adult Sunday school class. A part of the sermon here in a little bit, I'm going to do just some teaching, and that could be viewed as still teaching as a, as a part of the making disciples. It's not just the evangelism element, it's both. How do I make disciples? By baptizing and by teaching. And by baptizing, we're talking about evangelism. And we're going to look at that a little bit more closely and understand exactly how we find that. Because I want us to think about baptism, and here's what I'm going to teach on baptism, most of the time for us, uh, we talk about baptism when we're baptizing someone. And we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about it other than that. I guess we go over, uh, there's usually one class in the inquirer's class that we go over that. And, and it's something that we hold to, but it's not a central tenet. But yet it is an important uh, theological idea for us to recognize. 
And sometimes we may think that the Baptists and Presbyterians, that is those who, who baptize uh, only those who are adults and make a profession of faith, or those who, who baptize adults and make a profession of faith along with their children, that we've got these totally different views. And I hope that by, by walking you through some of the, the, the biblical record on baptism, we may see that maybe we're not so far apart, and maybe that there's elements in which this can help us all understand that when he says baptizing, he's talking about evangelism. And so we understand that baptism is the sacrament of entrance into the church community. Okay? This is an important concept. It's the sacrament of entrance into the church community. If you will, the Lord's Supper is continuation in the church community. And so there's a difference. One of my professors said, Baptism really focuses on justification, and communion really focuses on sanctification. And I think there's something to that. I don't think it's quite that simplified, but that helps us begin to put it in its right place. Well, when we think about the Old Testament, we think about uh, the, the sacrament of entrance into the church community, we think of circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the sacrament of entrance into the church community. Let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 12 to kind of get uh, an understanding of that and how the Israelites understood circumcision. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 43, we read, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Okay, so here's the, the concept. Passover was the Old Testament version of the Lord's Supper. What were they eating when they started the Lord's Supper? They were eating Passover, right? So Passover was the Old Testament sacrament of continuation in the church community. And what does he say? He says that Passover, no foreigner is to partake of it. It's not supposed to be for them. It is only for those who are a part of the church community, right? That's the, the guideline. Verse 44, he expands that. He says, But every man's slave purchased with money after you've circumcised him, then he may eat of it. So he begins to say, So if you've got this uh, individual who's in your household and they want to have Passover, they cannot unless they have received the sacrament of entrance into the church community. Once you've received that sacrament, then you can partake of the sacrament of continuation. So that we see in verse 48, he, he begins to uh, uh, open this up a little bit more. He says, But if a stranger sojourns with you, and celebrates the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. Now listen to this. Once he's been circumcised, what does it say about him? He shall be alike a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So circumcision made them a full Israelite, right? They now were as if they'd been born into the community. They were now fully a part of the church community in the Old Testament. And so we see that... that circumcision was the sacrament of entrance into the church community. It was first given to Abraham in God's covenant with him in Genesis chapter 17. And in, in the Abrahamic covenant, we see really the beginning of the development of the idea of the church um, and, and the church and nation and all that kind of gets confused a little bit later, but it starts out with this one family and, and God is calling them out to be this group of people, this, this community for God. 
And as God begins this, he says in verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And I know I don't have verse 12 up here, but I want to read it because it's important. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised. And so this sign of entrance into the church community was to be given, first off, to everybody, right? Then if someone from outside came in, they were to receive the sign of entrance into the church community. And for the children of those who were in the church community, those children were to receive the sign of entrance into the church community, right? Because they were part of the church community. We recognize that. A a, a portion of our church community went back to children's worship just a little bit ago, right? Absolutely. They are a part of that church community, and that was very much the case to Israel at that time. And so God established this sacrament of entrance into the church community. And when you received it, you were a part of that community. And we're going to talk a little bit, in just a little bit, about what what it did and recognizing that it wasn't magic. But to understand exactly how significant this sacrament of entrance into the church community was, we look at Romans chapter 4, verse 11, when Paul talks about Abraham. And he says that he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. He describes what circumcision was. Circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness which is by faith. Does that sound a little bit like Paul's words in in Philippians chapter 4 or Philippians chapter 3? When he says, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own which is by the law, but with the righteousness which is by faith faith. What he's talking about is the righteousness that's the imputed righteousness of Christ, right? The other word for it is justification. Circumcision was a sign and seal of justification. And who was to receive it? Abraham, those who came into the covenant community, into the community of the church, and their children at eight days old were to receive this sign and seal of justification. Because God said that the sacrament belonged to them because it was a sacrament of entrance into the church community. In the New Testament, we see the same concept regarding the sacrament of entrance into the church community, which is baptism. We see in Colossians chapter 2 that Paul writes to the Colossians. Now the Colossians were Gentiles. They were not Jews. They had not been circumcised. And yet listen to what Paul says to them in verse 11. He says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He tells these uncircumcised people that they had been circumcised, right? But it was a circumcision not by hands. So what is he saying? He's saying it's, it's not a physical. You weren't physically circumcised. But what he's saying is what circumcision pictured what it signified they had received. That's all he's saying to them. And then he goes on to verse 12 and says, when they received it, having been buried with him in baptism. It was in baptism. As they were baptized, and and I believe that here he's even talking about spiritual baptism, that that the spiritual significance of baptism, that, that, that they had received all the blessings of the 
that was uh, signified in circumcision. And so these Gentiles who were oppressed by Jews who wanted to say you're not really saved unless you're physically circumcised and so you're, you're, you're out here and then these Judaizers are kind of excluding them. Paul is coming to them and saying no, 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 no. You were brought into the church community. You received this sacrament of the church community, whether it's circumcision of the Old Testament or baptism of the New Testament, you received it and now you are rightly members as if you had been born into this community. You are a part of this as though you were native born. And that's what he's trying to communicate to them. And that's why Peter in Acts chapter 2, as he's speaking to a Jewish audience, it's a Jewish audience who knew that the sacrament of Entrance into the church community had been given to them. Peter says to them when they say, what, do you, what should we do? He says, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's telling them to be baptized. They'd already been circumcised. That had already occurred. We, they took care of that at eight days old, or those who came in from outside who were proselytes who had, had it taken care of later on. But they'd already been circumcised. But he's saying, but now we're starting a new covenant. Now the administration isn't the old one that had blood and that was uh, made a distinction between male and female. Now you're coming into the new covenant, which there's no distinction between male male and female, and the only blood is that which has been shed by Christ. So now you need the sacrament of entrance into the church community for the new covenant, and that's baptism. And he tells them that you need to be baptized. And look at what he says immediately following that to individuals who knew that in the Old Testament, the sacrament of entrance into the church community had to be given to them and to their children. And he goes on to say, for the promise is for you and your children. To these who were Jews, he tells them, this promise is for you and your children. But to these who were Jews who despise the Gentiles, he also says, and for all those who are far off, for as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And he begins to point their attention to say, it's not just, not just you and your kids. It isn't just a new Jewish thing. This is a new gospel thing that goes beyond. It's for everyone after he's told them that they're to be baptized and to have that sign and seal. So the same thing is said to the Philippian jailer in, Philippi, in Acts chapter 16 when he says, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Do you see the, the, the similarities to Genesis chapter 17? That Genesis 17 was the beginning of this old covenant rite of circumcision. And when it was given, it had to be given to everyone, to the adults as well as the children, all at one time, right? Abraham wasn't circumcised before that moment, so he had to be circumcised along with his kids. And so the whole household would be circumcised. And here we have the new covenant, and the gospel's going into this new era of these Gentiles, and this Philippian is being saved. And what do they do? The exact same pattern. They baptize him, they give him the the sacrament of entrance into the church community, and his whole household is baptized as well. And so you see the picture that is there of baptism is so tightly connected to entrance into the church community that it becomes inseparable. How do you enter the church community? 
Entrance into the church community involves the gospel. Whether it be someone like myself who grew up outside of the church and I came in contact with the gospel and it changed my life and I gave myself to Jesus Christ December 23rd, 1982 and I became a Christian and then I had to be baptized because I'd never received that. Or whether the children are coming from, from inside and they've been born into this community. And they're not saved at birth, right? Baptism doesn't save anyone. And let's face it, whether you're, you're a, a Baptist or Presbyterian, you understand baptism doesn't save anyone, right? A person can come forward and make a profession of faith and still not be saved, right? Simon the magician, isn't that true of him? I mean, he, he, he made his great profession of faith. The apostles baptized, an apostolic baptism. That's got to have power, right? And yet Peter turns around and says to him, you're a child of the devil. The recognition that it didn't save him at all. Well, the same is true. We put this sign and seal on our children. Does that save them? Goodness, no. What do they have to do? They've got to believe. They've got to make it their own. They've got to choose to say, I believe this. This is my faith. And so we, we put that sign and seal as an invitation to them. But think about this for just a moment. When we baptize a child... Why is that child in this church? Because they took the time to research the various churches in York and decided this was the best one? Because they decided, you know what? Of all the parents that have ever been, I think I want to be conceived by these two because they're going to have me in a church. If a child is born into this community, is it not the very hand of God that has placed them there? I mean, that's serious stuff, is it not? He put them here. He put them here in this church family in which the parents will tell them about Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Put them in this church family where the parents will live an example of what it is to believe in Jesus Christ. Where this child will see other individuals living for Jesus Christ. Where they will be prayed with and prayed for by other people who are living for Jesus Christ. Where they will hear the word of God and be invited to faith in Jesus Christ through our children's worship, through our Sunday school, through our um, Providence kids and our youth group and every ministry that we have. Why would God do that? I don't know. But I suspect that he has salvific purposes in putting a person where they're going to hear the gospel. And if nothing else, it'll be a perpetual invitation to them to believe. Do you see the evangelism of that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit speaks to us of evangelism. Whether it's going out to those who are outside of the body and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ and they are baptized and they come into the church community or those who are born in the church community and we baptize them recognizing God's hand and putting them in this place and then we begin the process of evangelizing them. Either way, the first step in making disciples for us is going to be evangelizing. We need to evangelize. And that's what this is an invitation to. To evangelize, we're going to have to evangelize without distinction. I could, uh, I said to the earlier service, I said the, 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 the bad news is that was just the introduction. <laughs> now we're getting into the meat of the thing. <laughs> to, to understand what it is to evangelize without distinction, 
Who does he say we're to, to baptize? Go there for, or to make disciples of? All the nations, right? All the nations. Nations is the Greek word ethnos. It's also translated as Gentiles. Now this is significant because uh, Matthew is specifically written to Jewish believers. That's why there's a constant emphasis on Jesus as king, and there's also a major emphasis between Jew and Gentile within this book. And you find this word ethnos translated as Gentile or nations frequently throughout the book of, of Matthew, showing that there is this distinction because it was very important within their minds. Who were the Gentiles? All those outside the church. All of them. Everyone outside the church. That's the Gentiles. That's the picture that we have of who are the Gentiles. And that's who we're to aim at. All those who are outside, not just the physical church, but outside the universal church. That is, even maybe people who are a part of the visible church, who attend, who've grown up in the church, maybe who even can become officers of the church who have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. We evangelize and we take the gospel to them without distinction. Uh, one time, a, a gentleman, he was a, a, a pastor in the PCA, he's since passed away, and he shared with our church that uh, churches should grow. Simple. They should grow. And by people coming to faith. And it really challenged me. And I thought, well, why is it that a church doesn't see people coming to faith? And two primary reasons come to my mind. I think we don't see people coming to faith, number one, because we spend so much time talking to ourselves that we're never actually talking to the lost. And the second is when we do talk to the lost, we're just trying to be such nice people that we never actually get around to talking about the gospel. And I think those are the two main reasons that people don't actually come to faith in Jesus Christ, because we're not talking to those who are unsaved. And when we do, we're not talking about how to get saved. And so those are the two subpoints of this first uh, uh, concept. To evangelize without distinction means we need to speak to the lost. Recognizing that they are not your enemy. The Jews viewed the Gentiles as their enemy, right? And kind of rightly so. I mean, didn't they have a lot of reason for that? Remember as we went through Daniel last year? Uh, I'm sorry, that's asking a lot, remembering what I preached so long ago. You remember reading Daniel anyway, and as, we, as you read Daniel, you see what, what's going on. Well, the, Daniel is showing that the, the, the Jews had been conquered by Babylon, and they were oppressed by Babylon, right? Only to then have the uh, Assyrians and the Chaldeans and then the, the Greeks and then the Romans come in one after another and oppress the Jews, right? At the time in which Matthew's saying this, the Jews are under the oppression of the Roman government, so that people were, were forced to pay exorbitant taxes, maybe be uh, pressed into service for the military, all kinds of stuff that they just really hated. And, and there they were, and they were oppressed. And, and so it was easy for them to view the Gentiles as a danger, to view the Gentiles as the enemy. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus speaks to us, his disciples, and he says, this is what we can think about them. He says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you'll be hated by all the nations because of my name. Well, there's good news, right? <laughs> that ought to bring people to Jesus. And, and, but, but it's, it's, and, and we experience that. We don't experience it as much as, as Christians today in America. Although more and more it's becoming a challenge, isn't it? 
more and more we're being marginalized. Christianity is, is not central. Uh, Dick Kyes writes about that in his book uh, entitled uh, Chameleon Christianity. Let me just read to you a, a few paragraphs in which he writes about that and just, just see if this doesn't resonate with what our experience is. He says, but regretfully, the Christian faith is not seen as a rallying point for those concerned for the moral state of our land. And people are not flocking to the doors of a church to discover a foundation for individual and collective life. For today's society is fundamentally apathetic about many issues that Christians consider most important. Some topics, however, can still raise the blood pressure. Think, for example, of feminism, homosexual rights, sex education, the environment, social freedom, racism, abortion, and the overarching value of being non-judgmental. These are issues over which many of our neighbors hold deep convictions. In each of these areas, however, evangelical Christians are not seen in places of moral leadership. On the contrary, evangelicals are perceived to be on the low moral ground. That is to say, many of our neighbors believe that regarding the issues they care most about, Christian people stand not on the side of good, but solidly on the side of evil. Being confident that they have a higher moral ground than those who follow Jesus, they feel that they can afford to ignore his claims. Is that not what you have seen growing in your experience? And so that's what we experience. And so it's easy for us to begin to look at the world, to begin to look at, at non-Christian society and culture around us and feel as though they're the enemy, right? And yet the Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our battle is not with the non-Christians around us. They're not the enemy. They're actually the people in grave need. And so we need to make contact. You don't make contact with your enemy you let your weapon make contact with your enemy. But we need to make contact with the non-Christians around us. A friend of mine was a, a pastor. He's now retired. And he tells a story that his church that he was pastoring had been growing and they'd purchased land and eventually they were able to build a building. And it was just a highlight for them. And, and I remember talking to him a couple years after they'd built the building and he said it was, it was one of the saddest parts of his ministry. He was just really disappointed. He said, because we as a church never use the building as an opportunity to reach out to our community. And so the church didn't really grow when they had built the church. They didn't see anyone new coming to the church because they'd put in that building. And they, they did not make the most of the opportunity that the building provided. I love looking at the statistics of the uh, attendance at Providence. And uh, after 1997, when this building went up, you saw the growth in uh, Providence's attendance. The church began to grow. It began to grow so fast that it was just a couple years later that they, we, we, we had to build an addition. Uh, we had already outgrown it, and we had to put in an addition that quickly. It was just, just really, really quick that it had to happen. And we began to see it. I, I look at that, and I say, praise God that there was some communication with the community around us. Somehow the neighbors got to know what was going on here and the utilization of this building for that purpose, and I thank God for that. And then I look at the fact that we have three projects planned right now. We're hoping to get a new sign, updating up, up the sign that's out there and get something that hopefully people will be able to notice and recognize that we're here, be able to communicate with them. That'll be wonderful. We're talking about a playground and a pavilion. Notice playground goes first. And a pavilion that we want to put out here and we want to communicate something to our neighbors, don't we? I know that they're seeing us put a roof on the building right now. That, that's, that's exciting. But what will we do? 
Will we utilize that as an opportunity to communicate with our neighbors? To say, we're not building a fortress to keep you out, but we're building an inviting community place where you can come in? Are we using it to build contact with our neighbors? I hope that we will. As a matter of fact, I pray on a daily basis that we will do exactly that. That it will be an opportunity for us to fulfill the first E in our vision. Providence Presbyterian Church wants to see every man, woman, and child in the world trusting in Jesus Christ. To do that, we will, what? Engage in relationships with people who are new to us. That means we're the initiators. We're going to initiate that relationship. Let's find some way to communicate with the folks around us exactly who Jesus is. We need to make contact, but we need to do more than just make contact. We also need to build relationships. If someone came up to your door and knocked on the door, you'd never met them before, and they told you, you know, you're going to perish unless you follow my teaching. What would be your response? Oh, okay. I'm with you, right? There's not a chance. You'd smile, back away, close the door, be sure you still have your billfold. Everything's good, right? Watch them. Are they leaving? If not, I'm calling the police, right? Why would we expect people to have a different response to us when we do that, right? Doesn't make any sense. I remember going through the evangelism explosion training, and some of you will remember this who've been through EE, that one of the things you talk about is the statistic that I think at that time they talked about like 85% of people come to faith because someone they know invited them, right? And you look at your life, and you can see that as a reality in your life, can't you? That's exactly how you came to faith. And so we build a relationship, a side-by-side relationship. I think of a, a family that we built a friendship with and we love them dearly. Uh, there was a time they were our closest friends. They were not believers. And it took, I think, around 15 years of, of meeting with them. And then one day they said, they were going through some difficult times, and they said, you know, from the moment we met you, you've talked to us about grace. And we've come to understand we have no idea what that means. Would you come to our home on Monday night and talk to our whole family about what grace is? Now that's a rare situation, but oh, it was a joy to be able to talk to them. But it required the 15 years of the relationship in which we'd built that relationship. And in that relationship, we talked about Jesus on a regular basis. One time I timed as uh, I knew that this, the, 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 the dad, um, I told Robin, I said, I'll talk to him about Jesus more quickly than any of my elders at my church. I said, we'll go in and we'll time. And it was less than a minute before he'd brought up, let's talk about Jesus. Less than a minute. That's what we talked about. And it was a great opportunity. And we can build those types of opportunities, those types of relationships. And why are we going to talk about Jesus? Because he's the most important thing in your life, isn't he? There's nothing, nothing that compares to my love for God. And so the opportunity to talk about him, I want to talk about him to everybody. And that opportunity is given. We've got to build those types of relationships. We've got to evangelize without distinction. Which means we've got to speak to the lost, but then we need to be sure that we're speaking the gospel. Well, here's where it gets a little intimidating, Pastor. <laughs> it's like, uh, you had me there for a minute. I like the idea of relationships. This gospel thing, that's a little scary. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? I'm going to give you two quick outlines that you can jot them down and, and, and you know them. You know them. How do I know that you know them? Because you believe them. That's how you got saved. It's not these huge theological things. You never, I have never, never in evangelism brought up supra versus infralapsarianism. Nope. 
You don't have to go there. Ordo salutis, out the window. Nope, you don't even talk any Latin at all, right? You can just do it with normal English. As a matter of fact, here's a great way to remember the gospel. Ready? Get me grape jelly fast. Okay? G-M-G-J-F. Get me grape jelly fast. One of my youth group, as I was teaching the outline from Evangelism Explosion, uh, wrote that down, and I will never in my life forget that. It's hard to remember the gospel, but I won't forget. Get me grape jelly fast. And it helps you because it's sweet, right? There we are. And it's grape jelly, which makes it kind of like communion. So anyway, that is the first, the first G is grace. Grace. That is to say, heaven is neither earned nor deserved, right? It's only by grace. The second is man. And what do we know about man? Man is a sinner and cannot save himself, right? The third is God. Who is God? God is holy and just and must judge our sin, but he's loving and is willing to save us. And that creates a dilemma which is solved by Jesus, not jelly, by Jesus, who is God and man, and he died to pay the price of of our sin so that we might receive the gift of eternal life. And fast is faith. And faith is an act of our will by which we commit ourselves to follow Jesus Christ, trusting that he's died for our sins. You can talk about that, right? You don't have to get all the illustrations right, but you can talk about that. How about another one, much more simple? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. You got that, right? There's three points. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose. Oh, according to the scriptures. Got it? How hard is that? Why did he die? For our sins. I mean, like real sins we committed? Yeah. What does it mean he died for them? It means he paid the penalty so you don't have to, right? Who is Christ? Oh, he's God and man. You see? You can begin to unpack the whole thing. And you can begin to present the gospel. And you can begin to talk to people about the gospel. Ask yourself, how does the gospel apply to my coworker? I love Daryl. Don't you? Talk to him about his experience this last week where he was able to talk to a coworker about the gospel because he knew the coworker and he knew the gospel and he just wondered, how does this apply to their life? And he applied the basic sense of the gospel to this person's life. That's what we talk about to your coworker. How does it apply to your family member? To your friend? To the church member that you're spending time with and you're thinking, I don't know if they know Jesus. How does the gospel apply to them? Maybe they do know Jesus, but you know what? You can evangelize me. I got to hear that message day after day after day, don't you? I forget. And so we bring that message to each other. Evangelize without distinction, meaning I speak to the lost and I speak the gospel. And secondly, I evangelize without delay. To evangelize without delay. I remember watching the Hollywood Squares as a child. Did some of you watch that? Silly show. Silly show. And I, I confessed early service. I probably confessed it too. I, I, think, I think I was skipping school when I watched it. So I have to say, don't do that, kids. It's bad. Especially homeschoolers. Thank you. But I was watching it, and I'll never forget this question that came up. And it was, according to the Roman Catholic Church, what is the greatest sin? And I thought, ooh, that's a good question. 
what is it? And I remember waiting. And I don't remember the funny responses. You remember there was always a funny response? But I'll never forget what the answer was. I don't know if it's true, by the way. It's Hollywood Squares. Let's not forget that, okay? It's just a silly old show. But it's profound. The answer was procrastination. If I keep putting off coming to Jesus, oh, I'll do that later. I'll do that later. I'll do that later. It will cost me my eternal soul. What if I put off sharing the gospel? I'm not going to say it's going to cost you your eternal soul, but it's not good. So to begin to evangelize without delay. Because the time is now. He says, go. Go, which is an aorist participle, which means it's a completed action when the main verb is done. It's already completed, okay? So it's, it's not exactly past tense. Uh, Greek doesn't deal with time that way. It deals with, with action. And, and so the idea of completed action is what the aorist indicates. And so it's a, a participial form, so it's giving kind of a temporal element. So it's, it's having gone from here, make disciples. When were they supposed to make disciples? The second they left the mountain, Right? That's when. It's like the church that, that had the sign over the doors as people would leave the church that said, you're now entering the mission field. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. What a great reminder is I'm going out of here. Why? To make disciples. It isn't something I necessarily am doing on Sunday morning during the preaching, although that's a part of it and we'll talk about that next week. But it's something I'm going to go out and I'm going to evangelize when I go out there. I remember uh, in seminary, one of the jobs that I had was um, I was uh, in the mountains of Colorado. We had a community of 300 people. So we had a, a volunteer uh, ambulance corps. And we would be given a, a stipend if we went on runs. And um, so I, I signed up and I went on a few runs. And I remember one of them, I got the page and I had to run down and get the ambulance. And I would meet the EMTs there. And we went off to a traffic accident. And we got there and we found that there was a young woman who... Um, was driving home and it appeared was kind of goofing around on the dirt road and a tire got caught and flipped the vehicle and she was thrown out and she passed away. And as we were there and we had to wait for the, the coroner to come in and, and walking around and I was trying to help with what little I could. I'd, I'd, I'd done what my role was and I'm kind of picking up the groceries. She was coming home from grocery shopping. That wasn't in the plan that day, was it? That wasn't what they expected to happen. It was a surprise. Because we don't know. We can't schedule it. And it was a reminder to me. And God cemented it in my mind because my job was then to transport her down to Pueblo, to the, the hospital, along with the coroner. So he sat right next to me as I drove the body all the way down to Pueblo, which is 45 minutes an hour away. Want to know what we talked about? We talked about that and how you don't know when. You don't know when God's going to take you. And I was able to talk to this coroner about his need for faith in Jesus Christ.
The time is now. So let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. To me, that's just a good Scottish phrase. It's just the Scottish accent, uh, uh, um, yeah, culture and, and mindset, the ethic. And that is to say that uh, don't complain, just finish the job. Don't complain, just finish the job. I love that about Scotland. To do that, we're going to have to ignore the obstacles. And I can think of three obstacles that we'll face right away to really getting on with the work. And the first is our pursuit of our personal peace and prosperity, right? Sometimes we can be so focused on trying to get the stuff that I want right now to make my life a little bit more comfortable right now that I lose sight of that which is really important. I begin to live as though what really matters is getting that extra sale, of getting that extra money, of getting that extra luxury item. And I begin to act as though that's what the goal is. And I forget that the souls of men and women and children are on the line. So I need to overcome that obstacle. The second obstacle that I run into is theological hobby horses. We're, our, our church would be called a Calvinistic church. One of the things that bothers me about Calvinism is that so often we spend more time trying to convert Arminians than we do trying to convert sinners. And it's just heartbreaking. That's not what we're called to do. The Arminians are saved. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't need to convert them. We need to love them as our brothers and sisters in Christ and then work together to reach the lost. We can be so focused upon our individual theological or whatever hobby horse that we miss what really matters, and that is the salvation of sinners. And the third, and this is probably the biggest, is fear. We've already talked about the fact we live in this culture that is not really conducive to Christianity, right? They already don't think that we're on high moral ground, and if we start standing up for Jesus, will they also think that we're unintellectual? Will they begin to judge us as being judgmental? Yes, I catch the irony of that. Will I lose a friendship? Because I really like this person, and, and frankly, you know, it's not like I'm very likable, and they like me. I don't want to lose that. <laughs> How will I ever replace them, right? Those can be the concerns that begin to, begin to face me. And yet I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, in which he said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We're not quick to sign up for that blessing, right? But the fact is, we, we honestly believe that Jesus is just plain old simply lying to us, Right? We believe that the God who is truth has spoken a lie in those words. We don't believe that it's a blessing to be insulted, right? And so we silence ourselves about Jesus lest we be insulted because of him. Now, I'm not saying it's okay to be persecuted when you're just being obnoxious. That's not the blessing that Jesus is giving. He's giving the blessing when you're insulted and persecuted for your faith in him, for taking a stand for someone's soul. That's where this blessing is found. To evangelism without, evangelize without delay, knowing the time is now and that we need to get on with it. Oh, I just got a call. No, sorry. <laughs> I couldn't find my Kindle, and I have a Kindle on here, so I'm able to read it from here. This is from J.I. Packer's Sovereignty in the, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He writes, Such was evangelism according to Paul going out in love as Christ's agent in the world to teach sinners the truth of the gospel with a view to converting and saving them. 
Okay, I'm going to read that again because it, it strikes against some of our, our, our Calvinistic uh, underpinnings and we may feel a little bit uncomfortable and that's okay. J.I. Packer was reformed. Such was evangelism according to Paul, going out in love as Christ's agent in the world to teach sinners the truth of the gospel with a view to converting and saving them. If, therefore, we are engaging in this activity, in this spirit, and with this aim, we are evangelizing, irrespective of the particular means by which we are doing it. Amen. Amen. The purpose of Providence Presbyterian Church is to make disciples. That's why we're here. That's what we need to do. That's what every ministry in this church should be about, making disciples. The context in which this commission was given to us was one in which you had disciples worshiping Jesus Christ. So the context in which we're going to do that is by each of us being disciples and worshipers. And the first step of making disciples is to evangelize. To evangelize, we need to do so without distinction and without delay. Let's pray. Our Father, I guess in my Calvinism, sometimes I actually begin to believe just in fate. I become a fatalist. And I begin to think that you will evangelize the lost. And I believe that no one can bring someone to salvation except you. You are the only one who can regenerate a heart. You're the only one who can save sinners. And yet to recognize that you've given that task to us, to me. Father, I pray that you will help us to grasp that. I pray for Providence. I pray that you will bless her. And that is to say that, oh God, you will speak well of this church and that you'll speak well of this church with the same power with which you said, let there be light, that you will say, let Providence Presbyterian Church be a church that declares my gospel and by which men, women, and children are saved. Would you speak those words, O oh God, and bring them to a reality, and we, your people, commit to that and to commit to be involved in evangelism without distinction, without delay. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen.